0: We're coming to the end of a series in Philippians 4 about uh, personal peace and all the dimensions of it, sweeping through a segment in verses 10 to 20 that talk about financial contentment. We come now to verses 19 and 20, full of comfort and assurance for the believer. Let us hear together the word of God, Paul writing, and my God will supply greater trust with you every day in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We come to the end of this series and uh, next week we'll be beginning a a series out of Hebrews chapter 11. It's going to be exciting, a great passage on faith. And I'm calling that series, Faith Stories, the Lives and Lessons of Hebrews 11. And throughout that 40 or so sweep verse sweep of Scripture, there are tremendous insights about walking with God in challenging times from the Old Testament as well as from the teachings about faith that the author of Hebrews gives us. So that starts next week. Today we finish up this sweep of Scripture that talks about financial contentment. And I want to begin with a story of, uh, with an, uh, of a guy whose name you may never have heard of, but whose impact you've experienced. His name was A.P. Giannini, and uh, he was an immigrant to this country from Italy, came to America in the late 1800s, started with nothing, as most who come to this country do, started out as a fruit peddler at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, built up his business, started to invest his money, and he founded a bank for all the Italian immigrants that couldn't find anyone that would finance their their new life in America. And he called it the Bank of Italy. It was modestly successful, but nothing compared to the other banks in San Francisco's financial district. That was until April 18th, 1906. Some of you know what happened that day. The great earthquake that struck San Francisco and even more importantly, the great firestorm that swept through the city for days afterward. A.P. was part of that. He could see the way the fires were burning, and nobody could stop the fires in San Francisco. They just burned until they found nothing left to consume. He could see that within a very few hours, his bank building was going to be burned down, along with all the other bank buildings in the financial district. He knew that all of the money that his depositors had given him was safe in a vault in the bank and all the records. And he knew that the fire would not destroy it. But he also knew that the fire would superheat that vault so that it couldn't be touched and opened for days or weeks. He knew that that would be true of all the other big banks in town. So A.P. had an idea. He got some of his employees together. They found the biggest wagon and team of horses they could find. And they backed it up to the back of the building as the fire approached. And he had his employees haul out this gigantic safe, put it into the the, the bed of that, that carriage, and covered over with tarps and garbage to make people think it was just a trash uh a trash carriage and to hide it so nobody would steal what he had. And they took that vault over the bridge to San Mateo, about 18 miles away, and they hid it in a cellar behind A.P. at Giannini's home. And sure enough, the fire swept through later that day and later that night through the entire financial district, and every bank was destroyed, and every vault was pulsing red with heat, and no bank could touch the assets of their customers for days, if not weeks, except one. An A.P. came down after the fires had quieted out a couple days later, put a door across some barrels at Fisherman's Wharf and reopened the Bank of Italy. And he said, by the way, we're ready to lend money to anybody, not just our depositors. If you want to rebuild, we've got cash. You want to pay your employees, we've got cash. People flocked to him. And loan after loan was made on nothing more than a handshake. And every single loan was later repaid. Now, Giannini was so successful that his name spread throughout San Francisco, and when people needed money, they came to him. And his bank quickly expanded so much that he decided to rename it to the Bank of America, which many of you, if not all of you, know today. Told you he'd impacted your life. He went on with his success, and he funded different ventures of people that wanted to take a risk like he did. He bumped into a young entrepreneur named Walt Disney, whose ideas nobody would touch. And Giannini financed Snow White, and the rest is video history. He bumped into a couple guys named Hewlett and Packard, who had a little business out of a garage in 1939, and nobody believed in what they were doing either. He financed them, and now there's digital history behind it all. A.P. Giannini. He, He basically... Had a financial secret, didn't he? He knew where the money was, and he held it, and it resulted in a great blessing to others, but also to himself made him immensely successful. In a way, that's a bit of an illustration of what happens in our life when we know some of the secrets of how God deals with us financially. When we know some of the financial secrets of the Scriptures, hidden away like they are, and we begin to apply them and harvest from them in life, there is some tremendous blessing that comes from knowing how God cares for his people. That's what this whole sweep of scripture has been all about. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 20, has been an insight into what Paul had learned through many years of financial challenge, of high times and low times, he says in verse 11 and 12. And he had learned that God provides for his people in it all. And in this interaction that he had with the Philippian church after they had sent him a financial gift, Paul lays out for us in his conversation with the Philippians what led to his financial contentment. Deep difficulties showed him deep secrets. And these are the deeper secrets of financial contentment. We've learned four already. First one we learned was that financial contentment is possible regardless of your financial situation. Verses 11 and 12, Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Second, he showed us that financial contentment can protect you from bad decisions in both good times and bad times. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and more importantly, I know how to walk with God through it all so that I don't make the bad decisions that come from having too much money and getting all caught up in it, or the bad decisions that come from fearing you don't have enough money and denying God. I know it all. Third... He taught us that financial contentment can increase as you invest in a deeper walk with Christ. The most quoted verse in the passage, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We found out that's not a a super achievement verse or a positive thinking verse or a name it and claim it verse. It's a verse that says, no matter what God leads you through financially, even if you're in hard times, you can be content because he will strengthen you to be content. It's a verse about contentment. Then last time, we learned that financial contentment, Paul said, a secret is that it can increase as you learn to give generously to others. This was verses 14 through 18, in which Paul thanks the Philippians for sending a generous financial gift to where he was in prison in Rome. And he lets them know, That their giving is generous and it honors God. Verse 18. He says, You well supplied me. I've, I've, I've got everything I need and more, he says. And this is a fragrant offering and it's a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It pleases God when you give generously. And when you do, you experience greater financial contentment because you know you're in God's will, don't you? There's an inner payoff a contentment and a joy that comes from knowing if you're giving out of what God has given you to others. Well, that's the sweep of the passage. And now we get to verses 19 and 20. And there is the fifth and final deep secret of financial contentment. I'll put it to you like I did with all the others in one sentence. Here it is, secret number five. Financial contentment, Paul would tell you, can increase as you learn to expect generously from God. Financial contentment can increase as you learn to expect generously from God. Now, financial secret four was that you can become more content as you learn to give generously to God and to, to the needs of the ministry and of others. This is what you can expect as you give. God will give generously back to you. Verses 19 and 20, and my God will supply every need of yours, since you have supplied the needs of others. It's a strange phrase, expect generously. I don't think in all my preaching I've ever used it. And you know, with my long-winded preaching, I had a lot of opportunity. I've never used that phrase, expect generously, but it really is what the text teaches, As you walk with him and you give under his leading, you can expect him to generously provide for you. It links really to a great reality. As you give generously, God will give generously to you. Now, in this whole passage, there's a true if-then linkage going on. They had given generously, Paul said in verse 18. You've fully given to me and more. It's overflowing. It pleased God. And then look at verse 19. And my God. So you see a connection there. Because you've given generously, my God is now going to give generously to you. Do you see how those two come together? You've supplied others' needs. Now my God will supply every need you have. Do you see the linkage? Raise your hand if you do. Good. I'll keep preaching. So it's very clear what's going on here. Now, this is not name-it-and-claim-it theology. This is not a prosperity teacher up here saying that that God is your banker, that that if you do this, God will do that. No, I'm not teaching manipulating God in that way. I don't believe in anything close to a prosperity theology. I think that's a wicked human invention to lead people on. What I am saying, though, is that as you walk with God, God will meet your needs. We know that's true throughout the Bible. And as you give... God will give you more to give more. See, this is not about you becoming rich. It's about you walking in the will of God. And as you learn to give, God will pour more into your life so you can continue to give and be a blessing to others. Big difference in those two. You can see this very clearly throughout the scriptures. There are many places in which it's taught. Jesus perhaps put it most succinctly in Luke 6, verse 38. He said, give, and it will be given to you. It's right there. You give generously, God will give generously back to you so that you can minister to others. Jesus said, God may overgive back to you. This is a mind blower. Good measure. He's not a cheap God. Pressed down, shaken together. It's the image of grapes being poured into a basket in your lap and you you fit more grapes in by shaking them down and they find their way to the bottom of the basket and you got room for more. God says, make room. I'll pour blessing into your life. I'll meet your needs. I'm a faithful God. I'm a generous God. Good measure. Press those grapes down. Let me pour some more in. Shake them together a little bit. And finally, I'll make your basket run over with my gifts and my provision. And it'll be put into your lap. You'll be buried in grapes. Kind of an interesting image, isn't it? He's saying, I do want to bless my people. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is saying, I will provide for you as you provide for others. There's the linkage again from Philippians 4. Now, the whole context of Luke 6, Luke 6, by the way, is not just about financial giving, but it is about giving to the needs of others. It's also about acts of kindness and love in their life. It's about ministry that you pour out. And so a giving life is not just a financially giving life. It's a giving life of time, of attention, of sacrificial love, of using your ministry gifts and not hiding them away, but using them to pour out blessing on others. It's all of that. So the scriptures teach it. Maybe an, an even bigger place, and Paul himself amplifies it, is 2 Corinthians chapter 9 for a moment. He says in verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He takes an image again from the fields. When you sowed seed, you threw it out onto a, a bare field with the hope that it would bear fruit. And you do that It's kind of by faith as a farmer, don't you? You sow it out. And if you want to take a big step of faith, you sow bountifully. If you want to have a little step of faith, you sow a little. And whatever you sow, that's what the harvest is going to be. It was simple everyday agrarian technology. Paul says the same thing happens when you give into the financial needs of others. Sow sparingly, you'll also reap sparingly. But if you give generously to others, God will give generously back to you so that you can give even more. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'd be cheerful too if I knew what I gave to people. God will provide for me so I can be an even bigger blessing. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see the linkage again? If you want to minister to people, to their needs, give to them and God will make sure you have something more so that you can give again. You can abound in every good work. This is about you receiving to give again and minister. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing so you can give more and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11 captures it all. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Do you see the connection? You will not be enriched in every way simply because you believe that, that you should be enriched as a child of God. You will not be enriched in every way because you use magic, name it and claim it words so you can drive a Bentley because Jesus wants the best for his kids. No. God will minister and provide for you in the way his sovereign will is decided is best for you. But as you give, he will pour into your life so that you can be generous to others. It's a very important connection. Wow. So the fifth secret is built all around this idea that financial contentment can increase as you learn to expect generously from God. He will pour into your life, not so you can consume it, but that you can give it, that you can minister. And how true this is, I've, you know, I'm I'm sure that you have stories. If you've walked with the Lord for a while and you've learned to give to his ministry, or others' needs have come into your life and you've responded to the prompting of God. A lot of times you give when you don't think you can, right? I'm sure you've got stories, as I have and I've heard of others, of times when you, you gave what you didn't think you could, and then all of a sudden God gave you, you back what you never thought He would. Isn't that true? A lot of times we give, you know, we have a conversation, and say, husband and wife, do you really think we can afford that? But we give, and what happens? God shows up, kaboom! And all of a sudden, you actually receive more than you gave. There's countless stories like this in the lives of believers because God is a generous God. Now, this passage goes on, and Paul amplifies in the details of his description here four reasons why God gives so generously. And I just want to fill out the rest of my message with those. And in so doing, I'll explain verses 19 and 20. There are four reasons that God is this generous, four reasons you can expect generously from our God. The first is because of who he is, because of who God is. Verse 19, Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours. Paul is saying something here. He's not using the generic name of God. He's talking about the God that he has come to know in his life experience. And he's saying, because you have given, I know that my God is going to be true to who he is, and he is going to give back to you. He's going to provide for you because this is the God, Paul says, I've come to know over all the years of my financial highs and lows. My God will take care of you because my God has taken care of me. This is the God Paul had come to know by experience. Now there's two things I think Paul came to know about this wonderful God. First is, he's a God who is generous in heart. He is simply generous because God is good. God is not a hold back God when it comes to what you need. If you're his, you're his. And he will take care of you. In James chapter 1, which we heard earlier read by David, Part of chapter 1 is designed to speak to people who had a low view of God, who believed that God was not trustworthy, and in fact, who believed that God would tempt them into sin just to set them up and then condemn them for sinning. That's a very distorted view of God, but a lot of people have that today. And the writer, James, answers that. And he says, that's not the God that I know. That's not the God of the Bible. Verse 5, James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives what? Generously to all without reproach. I love that phrase. When you need something from God and you come and ask him for it, he is not going to reproach you for even coming up and asking him. Now, all of us have the human experience in our mind's memory of a time when we needed something, maybe from a parent or we needed something in some employment context where we really needed a raise or an advance or something. And we know what it's like to experience reproach, the sting of somebody not even wanting to hear what we asked, ushering us out of the office, looking at the computer screen screen and acting like we never walked in. We know what it's like to be reproached, but God's never like that. You come to him with your needs. And if it is his perfect will for you to have that, he's not going to reproach you. And in fact, he'll give generously to all without reproach. That's how God gives wisdom, James says. And later on in the passage, in verse 17, it's how God gives everything. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is not a God who will set you up and then let you down. God is not a God who is stingy. He's a God who gives good gifts. And he points to creation. He says, look at the moon above, the sun in its course, the beauty of creation, every good gift, and every perfect gift you've ever experienced, every breath in your lungs, every blessing in a day, every part of beauty in your marriage relationship, every marvelous achievement you've ever had, everything God has provided so that you've made it through the end of a day, had a wonderful meal, and you've got groceries in the fridge. Who's that come from? You know. It comes from God. Every dimension about your career or your success surprised you and amazed you. Who did that come from? From your greatness? No, it came from God's goodness. Don't you ever forget it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is not from you, it's from God. It's from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So the Bible teaches us that God is generous and he graciously gives, number one, because he's generous in heart. You've never met someone as generous as God. And secondly, he's a God who won't be in debt to anybody. That comes into our passage here. He's, Paul says, "Listen, because you guys, guys gave so generously to me." Verse eighteen and 19, verse eighteen, it was an offering to God. My God is going to give generously to you. He's going to supply every need you've got. You can't be in God will not be in debt to anybody. This is a principle throughout the word of God. As far back as Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3, where he said in verse 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. How can I make it any clearer than that? Solomon knew it and understood it. Toward the end of the Old Testament record, Israel forgot that. They stopped giving to God. They stopped giving to the poor. They stopped ministering to others. They become a wealth hoarding culture. And God says, this is going to burn you down. Learn to come back to me and give to my ministry. Give to the poor. Give to the needs that I prompt you. And you see if I won't give back. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, Malachi 3.10, that there may be food in my house. You give to my will first, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Translation, it'll be abundant, flowing over. If you live in my will, and you give according to my will, and you give to my ministry, and you give to needs, You watch and see if I don't outgive you. I'm not in debt to anyone. What a wonderful God we serve. That's why you can expect generously from him. Secondly, you can expect generously from him because of what he gives. Paul says, my God is a generous God. He'll never be in debt to you. You can't outgive God. You ever heard that phrase? It's right there in Philippians 4.19. You cannot outgive God. He will give every need to you and more. You'll be deeply rewarded. But Paul goes on and he says, He will also supply every need of yours. Now this is because of what God gives. Many people get confused here. They have certain desires certain things that they believe are needs, which are actually only desires, and they're not in the will of God for their life. But they chase after them, and when God does not provide them, they get, they get into a bitter battle with God. Ever done that? Please raise your hands, because I'm raising both. I've done it. I continue to struggle with it. I get into a bitter battle with God when I confuse my desires with my needs. And we all do it. God does not say, I'm going to give you every desire. There's no naming and claiming with me but i will supply every need of yours so it's about needs not desires and so we know if we have a need god will generously meet it we have a need it's on god's heart and he'll meet it in his way now here's the thing i'm not to let i am to let god decide what my needs are not me but I can do that because he's a good God. I just read that to you, James 1.17. He knows what you need. And if it's good for you and it's his it's, it's perfect will for your life, nothing can keep that from being provided for you. That's a good thing because I'm never a good judge of what I really need anyway. I'm not. There's a verse I memorized years ago that's helped me confront myself many times. Proverbs 27.20. It says, the eyes of man are never satisfied. How true that is. The eyes of man are never satisfied. And if I lay out things that I deeply desire and don't bring them under the will of God and let God have veto power over those things, I can wrap myself around the axle of ambition and drive and dissatisfaction and always wanting more and never being satisfied with what I have once I get it. And I can get drawn into the American nightmare. And I have been in my life. You see, I... it's good, better for me to let God decide what my needs are because I'm a terrible judge of what I really need. I got statistics to back it up. Back in 1890, somebody thought of doing a survey. You say, Pastor Joe, where do you get all this stuff? Oh, I have time on my hands. They did a survey of the average American living in 1890, horse and buggy days. And they said, What are the, the, the basic material things you need? to have a comfortable life. And the list was only 16 things. One of them was soap. All the things you need to have a comfortable life. In 1890, the average American said, I only need 16 things. Somebody got the idea of redoing the survey 100 years later, so they redid it in 1990. The list was at 98 things that the average American now has to have before they can be comfortable. Now, can you imagine what it is now? I mean, that was before the age of the Internet, before the age of 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 Amazon, before the age of Internet purchasing, before the age of, for crying out loud, now they're threatening to bring you more stuff with drones to your house. It was before the age of endless opportunity and endless greed because now it hits you with the little pop-up ads and everything else you go to, and it, it, you can keep swiping and keep needing. Oh, I need that. Oh, I never knew about that. Now I need that. Oh, I just saw that on YouTube when it popped up. I really need that. That's brilliant. And what happens? You're over-leveraged, and you got a bunch of junk that you can't remember where it is. Do you know how your needs are met wisely? No. But God does, and you can, you can, you can absolutely trust That if you need it, and it's in his perfect will for your life, he will give it to you. You can be quietly satisfied. Third reason that you can expect generously from God is because of how he gives it. This is interesting. Paul says, my God, my generous God will meet your needs, not your greeds, but your needs, every need of yours. And he'll do it according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's huge. God is not a God with an empty warehouse. He is not a God who will just give you the basic, unless it's perfectly for your life. He's a God that gives according to his riches. He's got everything you'll ever need and then some, and he's willing to give it to you out of all that he has. But as you've probably heard dozens of preachers say, and I'll be a dozen in one, there's a big difference between giving out of your riches and according to your riches. Maybe you've never heard this. If you give out of your riches, you take from all the abundance you have and you take some and you give it. But what do you have? All the abundance that remains. You're just giving out of it, you don't even miss it. Mark Zuckerberg is one of the richest men in the world right now, he's uh, currently worth over $100 billion. To put that in perspective, his assets earn him $350 per second. Which means it would actually not be worth his time to stop and pick up a $100 bill if he dropped it. Think about it. He'd lose money, wasting the time to pick up a $100 bill. He generates $350 per second every minute of every day. If he spent $1 trillion a day, it would still take him 250 years to spend what he currently has. Wow. A trillion dollars a day. And that assumes he doesn't make any new money. But he's making new money all the time. He cannot stop making new money. He currently makes $20 billion in new income every year. $20 billion. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, a few years ago, signed a giving pledge, along with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, in which he committed along with them to donate half his his wealth over his lifetime to charity half of his net worth now that sounds pretty impressive doesn't it until you realize that that still leaves him at least 50 billion dollars to just get by on so that's giving out of plenty left no sacrifice And it kind of puts a little damper on how generous that really is. But Paul says, my God doesn't give that way. My God gives according to the riches of all that he has and the depths of his good heart. See, if Zuckerberg wanted to give according to his wealth, that would look more like him giving away 99.9% of his $20 billion annual income and living comfortably on the $2 million that would remain. And even that's ridiculous. He could give 99.9999% of it away and live better than we do. He's not giving according to. You see, according to means no limits and no holdbacks. Not only God can give that way because only God has both. He has no limits to anything because he can simply create more. You ever think about that? God There's no limits to anything he could have because he can simply create more. And secondly, there's no holdbacks in his great heart because he's perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly compassionate, and he will give it as you need it. He doesn't need any of it anyway because he's complete in and of himself. God is a different context in terms of how he gives. And so praise the Lord. That's the kind of God you've got back in your life. That's the kind of God you've got backing your financial future. No matter what comes, He's still there. And He gives out of His riches to you. Here's the last reason why you can expect generously from God. Paul says it's also because of the way He gives it. Now we get to the next verse. Verse 19 talks about how He gives. And verse 20 says there's a great reason behind the greatness of giving. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul is not ending the book there. He ends it a few verses later. That great exclamation of God getting glory is linked to the life of giving. He's saying, Philippians, because you gave me so much and you were so generous, it was a fragrant offering to God and God is glorified because you gave. And he also says, and my God is glorified in how he's going to give back to you. Both in your giving and in your receiving from him, our great God has his name glorified because nobody acts like this in all the universe except God. He prompts you to give, and you get a blessing in your heart from when you give, and then he will pay back and provide for you so you can give again. That's 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 a living miracle, isn't it? And God does that, and every time it happens, he gets glory. The glory is connected to giving. And I think one of the ways that God gets glory... Is because when the non believing world sees what Christians do financially, they gain, and it's a window for the world into the heart of God. Because believers give. When people come to Christ, they learn to give, not just of their money, but they give in ministry. They give in service. They give in suffering before a non-Christian world that attacks their faith. They give when, when the world turns away. They give when nobody would even think about it. You find believers, those that are followers of Jesus, giving, and it's an astounding and a rare thing in a world that's totally full of itself, isn't it? And when we give a little or a lot in a moment or as a lifestyle, the word world gets a, an insight into the heart of our God. It's a marvelous thing. Think about the times you might have sat down. You had a new CPA or a, a new financial advisor, and they sat down with you, and they're not believers. And you go through your portfolio, and, and, you, and you go through your, your monthly budget, and you get to that part of where you give to your church. And how many times maybe some of you, some of you can tell me this story. You sat there and the the financial advisor would say, what's this line item giving? Well, that's what we give to our church each month. And he says, well, for crying out loud, we've got to put that to some better use. Let's sweep that over and you can actually fund your mutual funds at a higher rate. Let's put that money to good use. Let's get it working for you. And you look at him and say, oh, no, we already have put it to good use. It's working for God's glory. Leave it exactly where it is. And the guy will say, but you're losing money. And you're going to say, you don't understand. And he's going to say, why are you giving it? And you will be able to say, because God gave to us. And God gave his best for us, his son for us. And every day God provides for us. And we give it back out of gratitude and for glory. For his glory. See, that's how it all comes no, he's a generous God, and he wants us to be generous like him because our giving is a window for others into the heart of God. And you may never know just how much of the world might be watching, and you never really knew till it was all over. I close with uh, another great missionary story. I closed with one last time. I'll close with one that's even more well-known this time. It's the, the story of William Borden. And uh, he uh, graduated from high school in 1904 in Chicago. His family was the borden Dairy family. And they were some of the wealthiest people in the world. He was born wealthy. He was already wealthy. He was looking forward to receiving his inheritance. And uh, for his high school graduation, his parents gave him a trip around the world. How about that? They chose somebody to go with him. It was a pastor to go with him. And make sure he was he was all right and safe. well, this pastor helped influence William Borden to deepen his walk with christ, and as they traveled through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, the pastor took him away from all the touristy places and made sure that every city they visited, the pastor took him to the down and down and out places, the places where people were suffering and didn't have their needs met and and He took him into the heart and the darkest parts of the cities in the back country and and William Borden wrote home about it, and he said. There's a world of hurting people out here. They not only need Jesus, they just need help. And he came back to his family and he says, I don't have a desire to be a millionaire anymore. I have a desire to be a missionary. And they said, you're going to throw your life away on that? And he says, I'm going to invest my life on that. And after his parents criticized him, he went up to his room and he wrote this in the front part of his Bible, "Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And he started to live that way. Left school, graduated, went to become a a student at Princeton University and Princeton Seminary back when it was a good Bible teaching seminary, sending out many missionaries. He decided that God was calling him to minister to the Kansu people in the heart of China who are Muslim and only spoke Arabic, one of the hardest people groups to reach. He realized that to get there, he would have to learn Arabic. And so, before he sailed for China, he went to Egypt to study Arabic. He got off the boat, and within two weeks, he came down with spinal meningitis. And two weeks after that, William Borden was dead. His story was sent throughout the world. and Rather than people saying what a tragedy it was, all kinds of christians who had been sitting in the background said what an inspiration it was and thousands of young people went to the mission field in the last days of his life in the back part of his bible william borden as he was suffering and facing death wrote these words no reserves No retreats, no regrets. He didn't have any of them. He'd given it all. He'd walked away from it all. He'd not retreated from the call of God, and he could die early with no regrets. There is a power to a life that understands the call of God and the faithfulness of God. May it be deeper in all our lives. Father, we love you. We thank you for the greatness of Christ, who is the ultimate demonstration of the fullness of the grace of salvation and of your devotion to a people that you've called out by your name. Help us to know, Lord, that as believers, as we walk with you, you will walk and prompt us to live in giving, And you will make sure that you generously pour back into our lives all that we need to give some more. That every need that we really have that is true will be met by you. Help us to submit every longing to you and every fear to you financially. And know just how good you are. In Christ's name, amen.